dare, dare to be a human being first. White coats, the accolades, the diplomas on the wall are impressive. We don't need to take that away from us. It is amazing how much work we do to do this, to have the access to the work we do. It is stunning. It's okay. But it ain't everything. And that can go away in a second. And dare to learn from your patients. No, we're always asked to be the experts and we have, it feels like we have to puff up and posture and know everything. The truth is we can't know everything, so don't pretend to. There's something very powerful when it's honest, when you say to a patient, sir, ma'am, I don't know the answer to this question. I don't know what happens after the end of life. I don't know what happens if you don't do this treatment, but I'll not, I'm not going to run away. I'll be with you. I'll be, we'll look in that abyss again together. That I can promise you. That is some of the most healing, powerful, gorgeous work you can ever do. And you're not going to find it in a laboratory. You're going to find it by living your life and daring to be a human being. Welcome to Difficult Conversations, lessons I learned as an ICU physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Web. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, this is the podcast for you. Well, I am honored today that the Orsini Way has partnered with the Finley Project to bring you this episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. The Finley Project is a nonprofit organization committed to providing care for mothers who have experienced the unimaginable, the loss of an infant. It was created by their founder, Noelle Moore, whose sweet daughter Finley died in 2013. It was at that time that Noelle realized that there was a large gap between leaving the hospital without your baby and the time when you get home, that letter to start the Finley Project. The Finley Project is the nation's only seven-part holistic program that helps mothers after infant loss by supporting them physically and emotionally. They provide such things as mental health counseling, funeral arrangement support, grocery gift cards, professional house cleaning, professional massage therapy, and support group placement. The Finley Project has helped hundreds of women across the country, and I can tell you that I have seen personally how the Finley Project has literally saved the lives of mothers who lost their infant. If you are interested in learning more or referring a family or donating to this amazing cause, please go to thefinleyproject.org. The Finley Project believes that no family should walk out of a hospital without support. Well, welcome to another episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. This is Dr. Anthony Orsini, and I'll be your host again this week. Today, I have the distinct honor and pleasure of having another incredible guest. Our guest today is Dr. Bruce B.J. Miller, who is a longtime hospice and palliative care medicine physician and educator. He is also an author, fellow TED Talk presenter, and keynote speaker. He has given over 100 talks nationally and internationally on the topics of death, dying, palliative care, and the intersection of healthcare with design. Led by his own experience as a patient, Dr. Miller advocates for the roles of our senses, community, and presence in designing a better ending. His interests are in working across disciplines to affect broad-based cultural change, cultivating a civic model for aging and dying. His career has been dedicated to moving healthcare towards a human-centered approach, 
on a policy as well as a personal level. Dr. Miller is a graduate of Princeton University. He received his MD from University of California and completed his fellowship in palliative care medicine at Harvard University. His 2015 TED Talk, Not Whether But How, aka What Matters Most at the End of Life, has been viewed over 11 million times. And his work has been the subject of multiple interviews and podcasts, including Oprah Winfrey, PBS, The New York Times, and the TED Radio Hour. His book, which we'll be talking about today, A Beginner's Guide to the End, was co-authored with Shoshana Berger and was published in 2019. Dr. Miller currently sees patients and families via telehealth through Metal Health, a company he co-founded with the aim to provide personalized, holistic consultations for any patient or caregiver who needs help navigating the practical, emotional, and existential issues that come with serious illness and disability. Well, BJ, I am so glad this is a long time coming. I know you're so busy and it's been great. You know, we first got to know each other when I saw you as a fellow speaker at the End Physician Global Summit and conference. And I spoke there, you spoke there later on and I heard your speech. It was amazing. And then I went and did research on you and saw your amazing TED Talk, which has a few more views than mine. BJ, thank you so much for being on today. Thank you, Tony. Thank you for everything you do, man. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. I first got to know you a little bit when we did the Global Summit on Physician Burnout together. I guess that was back in August, and I was an earlier speaker, and you were towards the end, and so I made sure I set my alarm to make sure I saw it, and I was really loved your lecture and your speech, and then I became a B.J. Miller fan, so I went on, got your TED Talk, 11 million. My TED Talk's at about 4,000, so I got a little ways to catch up to you, but, <laughs> but your zeros. Is, I got some zeros. It's getting there. <laughs> it, just, it just started in March, so I got some time. Is there oh, brother, you got um, time. I got time. So, But I loved your TED Talk, and then I uh, got your book, and I've been a real big fan of what you do, and everything that you say and believe really aligns with what I've been teaching and believing, too. So let's start out. I always talk about building rapport. Let's start out with hearing B.J. Miller's story. And as we like to joke on this podcast, how you reached the pinnacle of your career being on my podcast right now. Right. Oh, early in my life, I was not headed for medicine. Let's just say that. I didn't know where I was headed. And I was at Princeton, lucky to be at a place like that and thoroughly in the liberal arts mode. I was there to learn and expand my mind and without clear sense of where all that was leading. So I was sort of a melancholy kid. I was a pretty sensitive kid. I was very close with my mom, still am. My parents are alive, 56 years of marriage, and they're still cooking. Wow, God bless them. Yeah, and that's, I don't know how they keep going, man. It's amazing. And mom had polio when she was 18 months. And then post-polio syndrome hit her pretty hard in her 40s when I was 8, 9, 10 years old. And so that kicked me. And the reason I mentioned that is, well, I learned so much from my mother's example as a young person growing up around disability. So when I became disabled myself, which we can talk about, I mean, I was primed. I knew, thanks to my mother's example, that yeah, these things happened. I was more apt to ask the question, why not me than why me? And it was a very helpful start to being in these shoes. But I think the bigger point there is a child growing up sensitized to disability, and sensitized to how humans react to disability and react to difference and how we otherize each other all the time. And I was very tuned in to that and was very flummoxed by it. I didn't understand why 
we human beings seem to love each other, but we also seem to really hurt the hell out of each other, kind of casually, you know, wayward comments, just thoughtlessness. It just, I was kind of stunned as a kid, never really understood it, still am, I guess. But anyway, that, that experience is a, something of a caregiver too for my mom. Just, I, we didn't use that language, but in terms of just being available, helping each other out, it wasn't, it was no big deal. It was just the way it needed to be done. That's how it worked. And uh, that kind of nonchalance around caregiving, that seamlessly moving into a caregiving role, to son role, to brother role, to whatever. I think that also really set me up nicely for this career that I've chosen. So that fast forward, that's sort of my setup in early life. There's obviously more to tell, but that set me up. So then off I went to college and then the sophomore year of college, around this time of year, actually, 31 years ago, November 27th, friends of mine and I, we were just horsing around and decided to climb atop a parked train car that was just sitting there, a commuter train that runs from Princeton to Princeton Junction for bedroom community for Philly in New York. And anyway, we just climbed it like you climb an, like a tree. We didn't honestly think we were doing anything that nuts, but it turns out the train wasn't moving or anything. It was just still electrified. And in the New Jersey transit trains, the wires generally are overhead. So there's this metal thing that connects the train car to the power source. Anyway, when I stood up on top of the train, I was close enough to that power source and I had a metal watch on and the electricity arc to the watch. And that was that, just instantaneous. And that landed me in a burn unit for months and close to death and blah, blah, blah. And well, not blah, blah, blah. I don't mean to be casual about that. There's much to say about that, but that did lose both my legs below the knee and my left arm below the elbow from the burns. And it also opened my eyes in all sorts of ways. And that's really what set me on a trajectory towards working in medicine and healthcare. So that's kind of what kickstarted this interest that coupled with my experiences as a child with my mom, coupled with this sort of human entanglement around suffering, how we flee it and how we also cause it. All of those things predisposed me to be interested in medicine and very specifically, really, it turns out in palliative medicine. I was going to drop out. I went, I went off after college. I majored in art history, studied art. That was a very important part of this story for me. This is where I learned to see. This is where I learned how to work with this thing called perspective. And for a young man who was really kind of cut up by all the things he couldn't change, learning how to change my perspective was magical, really powerful part of my own therapy. And I also deepened my interest in humans. And then so after college, I did, really didn't know what the heck I was going to do. Uh, it was a little scary there for a while because it was just enough to get through the day. When I went back to school after my injuries, it was just getting through the day was plenty. So anyway, I ended up thinking that medicine would be a good use for all these experiences I just had and a good way for me to work with these experiences rather than to somehow put them behind me. So off I went trying to go to medical school, did the post-bac pre-meds, got into UCSF and and my promise to myself was I'll just keep going until I either can't do this. This is not meant for, so it's not martyring myself. Or if I find something I'd rather do, I wasn't in love with medical science. I'm in love with the idea of humans working with humans. And medicine was a sort of a bag of tricks to work with and allow me to be in front of people, with people. So off I went medical school, blah, blah, blah. I was going to go to rehab medicine, Tony, and I fell out of love with that for all sorts of reasons, it was a very, at least at the time, a very mechanical field. It turns out I was much more interested in sort of philosophical stuff. What do humans do with things that they can't control? So I was going to get out of medicine as a 
was the deal with myself that I'd made. I was disillusioned with the sort of realities of practicing medicine. But then my dean talked me into doing an internship. I happened to just do an elective in palliative medicine. And honestly, within a day, was in love with it for all the reasons I bet you are too. And off I went. It's quite a story. It really just parallels what I believe. And that's that human to human connection that is medicine. That's supposed to be medicine. I'm not for, know if you're familiar with Marcus Engel. He was on my podcast and Marcus Engel had a similar experience. He teaches in patient experience. Now he wrote a book called Here. And Marcus was T-boned when he was in uh, college, went instantly blind and had trauma and his friends in the car all died. And he woke up in a trauma bay and could not see, and they were putting chest tubes in. And, and I was reading your story. That's where I'm getting to this and was panicking. And there was a woman who just grabbed his hand. Who He didn't even know if he dreamed it or not, but it turned out to be a, a nursing tech and just said, Marcus, I'm here. And now Marcus spends his life uh, helping doctors train. He works at Notre Dame. But you had a similar, in your story, a similar person when you were, tell, tell us about that person. Yeah, boy. I'm moved even just remind, you're telling me about Marcus's story and then reminding of my own. You know, this is such little poignant, exquisite little moments. They're often very quick, you know, little eye contact here and there. They're not exotic per se. They're very accessible, which I think is part of probably our shared message. But you got to do them. I mean, you got to sit, you got to be with someone, you got to be present. It's that simple and that hard. And so there were several nurses in particular that really affected my course through the burn unit. The first was Joy Varkartopone. So this is New Jersey, the early, your place, Tony, this is New Jersey in the early 90s. So you can imagine the hair and the nails and all this. And, and by the way, I grew up about 20 minutes from St. Barnabas, oh, the yeah. hospital that you were sent to. So I know the area very well, yes. Okay. So you can, you probably walk past Joy Varkartopone one day, big, amazing red hair and just a sweetheart. And I don't know that she was much older than me, really. I don't know that I ever knew. But anyway, Coming into the, I was airlifted from the Princeton little local hospital where they did some emergency work and cut the fasciotomies to let some of the heat escape, essentially. And then airlifted to St. Barnabas, the one burn unit in New Jersey. And I guess, and I barely remember this. This is all very hazy. And like you said about your friend Marcus, did I dream it? Was it real? I'm not even really sure. It's all kind of fuzzy. But some of the early memories were they couldn't get me. I was too tall. I was almost six, five. And I remember them kind of trying to get me into the helicopter. Remember that being a really clunky, awkward moment and the pilot's kind of, and then landing at St. Barnabas and there's a team waiting to receive this or trauma flights, as you can imagine. And I'm ventilated at this point. I'm wide-eyed and this is just hours into the ordeal. Lord knows what kind of pain was happening. But so I landed in there and you could hear people talking as they do, you know, so sort of, this is work and people do all sorts of things to get through the day of work. And so some guys were taking bets on whether this guy was a goner, this kind of sort of talk. And my eyes are just going all over the place. I'm, I don't know what the hell is going on. And Joy, just like you described, just came sidled, sidled up, saw me, just took one look at my eyes and heard, you know, she knew and instantly took my hand. I don't remember her necessarily saying anything. She just took my hand, locked eyes with me and she just let me know she was there. And it was orienting and grounding and soothing. and. All sorts of miraculous effects came from that. And I had many such moments from there and out with Joy and a handful of others that made this whole experience possible and even wonderful. I mean, come to the chase here, but I remember the day I left the burn unit and as Tony, burn units are you know, hellscapes. They are a particular 
brand of difficult. Nature is entirely kept at bay. Infection is the problem. So they're wholly unnatural environments. Everyone is gowned to the hilt. Anyhow, there's pain is reverberating around the unit. Yes. Yeah, it's just, it's intense. And, and you know, every day, the tank room and the, the, where you'd get washed and scrubbed and debrided and oof. But you know, those guys, by the way, the burn techs, the, some of the funniest, most beautiful people I'd ever met. I don't know how the hell they did that job. I mean, it is their job was to torture people on, on their own behalf uh, for their own good. <laughs> and anyway, I just remember one thing to kind of summarize that experience was when it came time for me to leave the burn unit. Fine. This is a celebratory moment. You're in the clear. You know, you're leaving this intensive war to, to do a step down place and on your way out to the world again. And in so many ways, that should be a celebration. This is grad graduating. I made it sort of thing. I wept like a baby leaving the burning. This had become my home. Joy had become my, I don't know what to call her. There was just, anyway, that even amidst all that pain, even amidst all that loss, I was so at home there thanks to that kind of handholding and that kind of eye contact and that very basic human love. And that's the miracle of medicine. And we are being bombarded, you know, with the topics of physician burnout and administrative duties, et cetera, and the working in a busy NICU. But I'm proud to be a neonatologist because I think just as well as any other specialty, but especially in neonatology, the neonatal nurses and the staff do death and dying better than anywhere I've ever seen. And it's in that middle of the night when the mother's holding the baby and the father standing behind that you really see what medicine's supposed to be about. And then of course, next morning it's Epic and Cerner and, and EM, EMRs. But I try to tell the young doctors, that's not what medicine's about. It's it's about that human connection. So mm-hmm. your story and Marcus's and anybody who's listening, if you haven't heard the podcast from Marcus, it was like the third or fourth episode. Marcus is an amazing uh, story, but let's go on with your life work. So so death and dying, I love the way you teach. We'll get to the book later on. But why do you think is a cultural or why do you think that in the United States or even now anywhere that we have such a struggle with this and that it's a topic no one wants to talk about? We'll get to why physicians don't want to talk about it. But what is it about death and dying that's really, in your experience, why do we keep getting it wrong and, and seeing it differently? I think denial, you know, I think the refrain of we're all in denial is oversimplified, but true enough. And there are things we can enumerate to sort of modern life. But before we do that, I think it's important to let us all off the hook. I mean, on some level, this is inherently very difficult on a couple of levels. For one, just hormonally, neurologically, we are really wired for a fight or flight or freeze response to anything that threatens our existence. I mean, that that's a reflex. You don't really have a choice in that. There's something in our wiring around this. So A, that's not our fault, you know, fine. And I think it's also the way this odd, honestly, Tony, I'm not sure if the human mind is a great gift or a great yoke that we're saddled with. We can think ourselves into so much trouble with these minds of ours and we can cause so much trouble, but we can also get out of so much trouble with these minds of ours. The jury's still out whether the human mind is, in my mind, in my, in my mind, the jury's out whether the human mind is a on balance of wonderful thing or a terrifying thing. But let's just say it is very, the way we conceive ourselves, the way mind constructs a sense of self and identity. You know, there's a lot to say about that. 
both from a sort of a medical science, a social science, and just a philosophical or spiritual basis too. And I think it is incredibly difficult for a mind to wrap itself around not existing, not being. Everything we've ever experienced, the world, even if we're completely soaked in the world's beauty, not ourselves, even if we're trying to ignore ourselves and be completely altruistic, well, we have to acknowledge that the world as we ever know it is still washed through us. We only know life through our experience. So anyway, I think it's very difficult for a mind to try conceiving of not being. It's <laughs> the second you do, you find yourself being, watching yourself not being. It's just, you get in these little loops. So anyway, we're going on about that. That's a big one. But I think the more interesting things and the things that we can actually affect are the social cues on top of it. Medicine's commitment since the early 20th century to a disease focus, since the technology revolution around call everything that you don't like a problem and then go to war with it, and then we'll kick it out of the bar experience. That has its really severe limits. It also had led to incredible breakthroughs in medical science, but at a cost. So we've got a sort of a medical system that dominates our view of what life is, that life is a pulse, essentially, or life is a brainwave. That has become the dominant sort of view leading our charge of what life is, what death is. So there's all the problems of medical science and the limitations of the model that we use to think about life there that flow from it. Meanwhile, you've got the erosion of religion. So places where normally people would go to get answers to big spiritual questions or existential questions, those aren't the same. We don't have the same general commitment as a community. Family structures are such that we move around a lot. So you're not living with three generations under the same roof anymore. So we're also moved into cities. So I've noticed a big difference when I'm taking care of families who are coming off a farm who are around the cycle of life all the time. Birth, death is a daily thing as you and I know it to be, but we organize our lives to distort that reality and and it shows. So you put all of these things together and an economy that thrives on exploiting our desires and our fears, you know, and politics that go with it. And before you know it, we are pulled away from our nature. And that's problematic in a lot of ways, makes sense in a lot of ways. But the problem is what we end up doing is kicking the can down the road. We end up making things more complicated or harder than they need to be because we haven't dared to look at it. We keep them in the closet. We keep them in the dark until it's just too late, until we're forced to look. And by then, there's no time to develop a sort of a nuanced or subtle or thoughtful approach. You're just a bag of reflexes, freaking out. And this is what we get. And then we add that to, as you said, a hospital and a physician basis of looking at failure or success by whether someone lives or not. My audience is going to say, oh, he's telling the story again, but it's apropos because I'm a big fan of uh, Rabbi Kushner and his work and the author of When Bad Things Happen to Good People. But he tells a story, it's on YouTube, and I apologize to my audience because I probably just said this a couple of weeks ago, but it's so apropos. He was getting ready to do an interview with an evangelical healer and he's in the green room and he says, I'm very annoyed at this guy. Because this guy's going around telling everybody that he's going to touch your forehead and you're going to be cured for whatever cancer. And so he goes, I kind of have a chip on my shoulder. I'm kind of annoyed at him. And I just couldn't hold my tongue. And I said, do you really believe that you can heal everyone just by touching their head? And the guy turned to him and said, curing is when you're getting rid of a disease. Healing is helping someone when there is no cure. I can heal everyone that I touch. And Rabbi Kusher just tipped his hat and said, that was a great answer. And I think that as physicians, 
I talk about this all the time. Physicians, we don't like to talk about that. And in fact, what do we do? We call BJ. <laughs> you know, let's call palliative care and then dump on them because, you know, and then yep. my palliative care friends always tell me, yeah, they call me and I'm the bad guy. You yep. should be calling me earlier. Yes. Uh, which we can talk about. Physicians are, you know, even breaking news. Uh, there's one old study that showed that physicians are often viewed as uncaring compared to police officers. What is it about the physicians that you think, is it just our type A training of we must cure everyone, not heal? I think culture moves us in really powerful ways. And the culture of medicine is powerful, is profound. I remember when I was doing my fellowship at, you know, in the halls of Mass General and stuff. It's an amazing institution and I can't help but be moved by all that it's achieved in a relatively short time. It is pretty remarkable looking at how we've pushed back on death in successful ways. We live longer, blah, 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 blah. So I'm alive, Tony, very clearly because of Western medicine. There's zero doubt about that. So it's complicated. There's a lot to love about it, but it, like so many uh, sort of incomplete models as the medical model is, inadvertently causes trouble. And you so you put together all our reflexes to run from the subject, the social cues that push us away from the subject, and of course, the medical system is made up of human beings who have, and of course, it, it, it has all the foibles of being a human in it. Our time is so fascinating. But in the West, so since mid-19th century, technology revolution, industrial revolution, the time where America per se, as a country per se, has grown up just happens to be super seduced by technology and by the power of the human mind to think its way through problems. That is such a, has been such a successful mode. I don't blame people for applying it to old age or death. I think we're just long enough down that course where we have to acknowledge this isn't a problem for us to solve. We can't cure everything, at least not now. And meanwhile, if we're really committed, if we're doing medicine because we're committed to humanity, first and foremost, well, then that thing called bedside matter isn't just this kindness on the side. It becomes the thing. What I'd love to see happen, Tony, would I think HHS, our medical system, I think it, we're, we need a new Flexner report to tell us what medical education should be. I think we should rewrite our mission statement at HHS. For my money, the mission of medicine will look very much like the mission of palliative care. And palliative care, as you pointed out, is a specialty. Why do you need to call this specialist to come in and remind you of these very basic fundamental things of human connection, et cetera, that inevitability of death, the non-failure of death, et cetera? Well, it's telling. And palliative care as a field is a corrective to a, a system that's kind of gone a little wayward with itself and needs to be reminded of why we're doing all this in the first place. So maybe it is after another dozen or more years of this kind of conversation being less and less exotic. Maybe that system will commit itself to, again to patient care, to healing versus curing this much bigger, broader goal, and we'll live in a different place then. Yeah, I also find that our training is so limited. And as human beings, we run away from things that we're not comfortable at. Mm -hmm. If you asked me to do an appendectomy, I'd be really scared. Mm -hmm. I have no idea. And so what I've dedicated the last 10 years of my life is in what keeps me going, BJ, is when I take a doctor, we train him hour, two hours, put him through some role playing, teach him how to be more comfortable with an end of life or a tragic diagnosis. And then we do the anonymous surveys and they overwhelmingly write these things like, this is something that now I feel comfortable because nobody teaches you how to do it. How do you do it? And then the other thought I would say is that one of the phrases that drives me crazy, especially if I'm teaching residents is, 
no, we can't, there's nothing else we can do, you know, <laughs> and there's always something you can do. You can heal and you're always going to be there with your patient. And so I, I just think what's so gratifying is when I do teach a doctor this, or they get that cue of this whole kind of, it's a human to human thing, their eyes light up. Like, wow, they didn't tell me that in medical school. Or, wow, nobody told me that. Or my attending told me when I was a resident, just call palliative care and they'll take care of it. <laughs> so, well, you have a relationship with that patient for the last two weeks. Right. Palliative care is really going to help you. But how about you be there when palliative care learns? And then I tell them, and here's what I've learned. I've spent 10 years stealing from palliative care, listening to BJ talk to a patient and saying, I like that phrase. I'm going to use that. And so it's okay to say I'm stealing. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. We're helping people. Can I say one more thing, Tony, on that? But I just want to highlight what you're saying, which is the kind of care that you and I are striving for, and hopefully we do generally deliver ourselves, et cetera, et cetera. One of the compelling arguments to go this route is not just for better patient care and family care. It will be better for us as the clinicians. This is part of the answer to why we're burning out, why this work is so frigging hard. Anyway, so I just want to make the point that this isn't just another cue for us as clinicians to go learn yet another skill of being humane and kind. Blah, blah, blah. That's not just to improve your patient outcomes or sort of, that is to help you fall in love with the work that you're doing and learn from it and to be humbled by it and to see yourself as a human being before your white coat and blah, 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 blah. So I just want to highlight the link you're making that this is the route to a happier, better physician, not just happier, better patients. Hundred percent, and and you know it feels good when I resuscitate a, a baby sure. and I go home feeling great about myself, and I just you know we coded that baby, he's doing fine, but it also feels good after a baby passes away, and I see that miracle in the room, and the mother gives me a hug afterwards because I feel like I did something good, and we should stop considering that a failure. We did our best, and that just wasn't meant to be. So thank you for pointing that out. That's a great point. So let's talk about your book. I'll share something personal with you. When I, I read your book, A Beginner's Guide to the End, I, I loved it. And I'm reading through the book and I'm reminded of my father-in-law. So my father-in-law passed away. My wife's going to get mad because I don't know the exact age, but 95, 96 years old. He was an amazing man, went through a very difficult life and was the most appreciative, happy person I've ever met. But my father-in-law towards the end, as I'm reading your book, and we'll explain your book later about, you know, it's very specific of like things that you should do as you're preparing for the end. And it's a very practical guide. I'm reading the book and I'm thinking about my father-in-law going, did he write this book? My father-in-law did every one of those things. And I was like, he was beyond his years. And, you know, and when he passed, his goal in life, he always said he was ready to go. He lived a great life. He was so happy. And I'll never forget this. His one goal was to live longer than my mother-in-law so he can take care of her. And the second goal was he didn't want to spend a long time in a nursing home or whatever. So he died in his own house. And his last words was to my wife. And he said, Lauren, I won. And that was his last, I won. <laughs> he, he won. He <laughs> says, I won. And I thought that was the most beautiful thing. But tell us about your book. It's just a practical guide that I think everyone, probably some of it you know, but you don't want to talk about it, but it makes you think, I think it makes you think about life, not death. Oh, right. Uh, thank you. I mean, that is, that's, that is certainly the intent. I mean, so for starters, thank you for that story about your father-in-law. That's so beautiful. Yeah, I agree. He won. Good way to go. And he makes the point too, that healing doesn't mean living forever. Healing can still include dying. 
it actually generally does. So thank you to your father-in-law. It's friggin' beautiful. But I think what he played out was, if you dare to rope death into your worldview, your sense of reality, your sense of life, if death is a part of life, well, right on the shoots, it loses some of its toxic charge versus this sort of this thing that we've inherited, which is more that life and death are opposed. That death is this thing that steals life, this thing in the night, this thief. That's much, that's a much harder story. It's more cinematic, maybe. I mean, maybe it's more interesting or something. I don't know, but it's certainly more hurtful and less accurate. There is not a living thing on this planet that does not die. It is just so entirely part of the deal. And so what your father-in-law has done and what this book is trying to help us do is, is just for one, just help us dare to look at this thing called mortality. Even if you do nothing in the book, the practical steps, that's fine. We're all going to leave some kind of a mess one way or another. It's, the whole idea is here is just to be sort of pristine through life and leave no residue, get out of the way. That's not at all the point. So celebrate our mess, but also our triumphs too. And it wants to just help people, nudge people to dare to look at their mortality so that you begin to learn the lessons while you still have life in front of you to play them out. I would imagine your father-in-law would make this point that keeping death somewhere in his proximity, the idea that he's not going to be on this planet forever can be cathartic. It can be compelling. It can be the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning because you don't have infinite number of mornings to get out of bed. It can help you appreciate what you have while you have it. It can also help you forgive yourself to not getting to everything because life is bigger than any one person. And of course, it's it's probably always unfinished. And this idea of closure is beautiful, but that's a construction. We create closure. Otherwise, life is this perpetual, crazy thing, always going, always swirling around with death. Just need to look out your window to see it or inside your own life to see it. So one point here is to help us look at this thing called mortality and therefore look at this thing called reality and therefore look at this thing called nature and human nature and to have a more expansive idea of what it means to be alive. That's just interesting and compelling, powerful. And then the second step here is what the book is mostly about. And it is called a beginner's guide to the end for a reason. This is the beginner stuff. This is sort of the practical things you can do to kind of clear your deck a little bit. I don't want to reduce dying to a, a to-do list, but there are all sorts of things that come along with the clerical issues, paperwork issues. You got to push back on the medical system that all of the defaults will have you in an ICU on machines indefinitely unless you say no thanks at some point. So part of the point here of the book too is just practically how to kind of put one foot in front of the other and move through this experience. It's also when you're paying attention, then you get to know when you've had enough and when you get to say no thanks to that next treatment that's going to keep you in the hospital instead of at home or whatever it is. Then you can be thoughtful and you can welcome all the beauty into the mix too. And you can avoid a lot of pain. It's just not necessary. So that's sort of the practical pieces of the book. But again, I think the most exciting stuff, if I were to write an advanced, that's the beginner's guide to the end, the advanced guide to the end would probably be one or two pages. It wouldn't be much. It would be love. Go find a way to love this whole dang thing. Don't pick and choose. I love some of my life, but if only I didn't have that. I just can't have all good. Just go soak it all up. Bow down before it. Lean into mystery. Look at things you don't understand. Just roll around with this thing called life. That will protect you against the fear of death being so crippling. Your love of life is probably the most powerful thing that will help you through your death. 
And as I'm reading, I'm thinking like there's suggestions there, write letters to your loved ones. Well, you don't have to be dying to write a letter to your loved one. You can do it now. Exactly. And as you're writing the letter, it's actually making you appreciate that loved one. You're telling the loved one what it is that you love about them. Yeah. As if you were dying, you may not even be sick. But after you go through these exercises, my final law wrote his memoirs. After you go through these exercises, you appreciate your own life and you appreciate other people's life. So as you say, it's a big circle. Yes. And it's friggin' amazing and beautiful. And the good news is you can't have all the answers. So therefore, you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to posture. You don't have to pretend. You can just be wide-eyed. And that's just honest and beautiful. And including you can be terrified. I mean, I think part of the idea here is to de-shame the things that we don't have control over, we should not be ashamed to be sick. We should not be ashamed to die. We should not be ashamed to have pain. That's mean, the way we do that to ourselves and to each other. And it's just unnecessary. So anyway, there's a lot to say about this, but one of my favorite things about this subject is it's not just harm reduction, like do these things so you don't get torn up by the medical system at the end of life. It's do these things so you can love life while you still have some in front of you. I love that. So BJ, in closing here, I'm going to ask you for two more questions, just advice. Advice to the patient who is being faced with some medical challenges, maybe life-threatening or not life-threatening, maybe just getting older. And then advice to we healthcare workers who are uncomfortable with this topic and uncomfortable speaking to patients. And if you can give us first the patient and then the healthcare provider. Yeah. Well, to the patient, I think I'd say the most important, perhaps, summary thing I might ever, one way or another, encourage a patient to do is pretty simple. It's participate in your care. The days of just handing yourself over to the family doc who's known you for generations, known your family for generations, and you don't need to describe an advanced directive to because he knows you so well and has the time to navigate all about the Marcus Welby's of the world that does not exist anymore. The impulse to love and care for people exists, but the systems issues, the volume issues, it's just not possible. So be very leery, be very careful of handing yourself over and sort of just to the medical system. It's not a malevolent system, but it's not a beneficent system either. It's not going to know what you want. It is too powerful. It can do too many things to you that you may not want to have happen. So I think first and foremost, it's your life, it's your death, it's your care, participate in it. Think of your medical team as your advocates of people to consult with and to advise you and to get help from, but it's your life. It's your death. You can say no. It is always legal and ethical to say no to any treatment. You can't demand certain treatments, but you can say no to any of them. And at some point, you probably need to for most people's goals at the end of life. So I might basically participate. Your death, your life. This is don't hand yourself over. Then the second piece for the clinicians in the crowd, the doctors. I think it's like apropos what you and I've been talking about, Tony, is dare, dare to be a human being first. The white coats, the accolades, the diplomas on the wall are impressive. We don't need to take that away from us. It is amazing how much work we do to do this, to have the access to the work we do it is stunning. It's okay, but it ain't everything. And that can go away in a second. And dare to learn from your patients. No, we're always asked to be the experts and we have to, it feels like we have to puff up and posture and know everything. The truth is we can't know everything. So don't pretend to. There's something very powerful when it's honest, when you say to a patient, sir, ma'am, I don't know the answer to this question. I don't know what happens after the end of life. I don't know what happens if you don't do this treatment, but 
I'll not, I'm not going to run away. I'll be with you. I'll be, we'll look in that abyss again together. That I can promise you. That is some of the most healing, powerful, gorgeous work you can ever do. And you're not going to find it in a laboratory. You're going to find it by living your life and daring to be a human being. I love that advice. Thank you so much, BJ. That's fantastic. So BJ, tell us just as closing here about how people can get in touch with you. Tell us a little bit about what's a mental health, yeah. your organization. And there's so many people out there that are probably going to want to talk to you or, or reach you in some way. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, please. So we're getting better on social media. We're, hey, we're a little old fashioned, but we're getting there. So I say we, it's Sonia, my business partner and I who founded Metal Health last year. I'll tell you about that in a second. But so uh, the Twitter handle, I think, is at BJ Miller MD. And then our Instagram and the company Twitter is just at metal underscore health. And metal is M-E-T-T-L-E, like metal, one's inner strength, one's inner reserve. So that's how to reach us. We'd love to hear from you. Sonia and I, we were marinating on what to do next after the book for a long time. Sonia was our research assistant and she and I have worked together for the last five or six years. And then the pandemic hit and it made it pretty darn clear. The world needs, we always, we know the world needs more palliative care and we need access to it. It's lumpy. So you can get palliative care if you're lucky to be in certain health systems or certain regions of the country, but it's actually hard to find even if when you realize what it is and get turned on or tuned into what it can do for you. So we started mental health as an online accessible to anyone with a smartphone kind of thing or even just a telephone, is a way to make this kind of care more accessible. And we did that by dropping the medical piece. So if you come see me at Metal Health, Tony, I will lead with my experience as a human being and as a physician, but I'm not going to be your doctor. I'm not prescribing medications. I am seeing you in a social capacity to guide you through this experience, to guide you through getting the kind of care that you need to coach you on what to ask your doctors and how to hear your doctors, et cetera. Palliative care is multidisciplinary and one of its charms is it comes at this subject from many different angles, the social angle, spiritual angle, et cetera. So we let go of the medical piece to make ourselves more broadly accessible. You don't need a doctor's referral, et cetera. You can reach out to us anytime, whether you're a patient or a caregiver. So that's why we started mental health and that's what we're doing and we're trying to build it as we speak. Got a long ways to go, but please come visit us there. But boy, is that needed right now, especially with COVID. And we're going to put all of this in the show notes so you can get visit us and you can look at the show notes because I have a feeling a lot of people are going to be contacting you. I certainly feel privileged and honored to have met you kind of in person, if you call Zoom in person. So maybe one day we'll get to meet really in person. And I just want to thank you so much for for being on today and for sharing your wisdom with us. Tony, it is such a pleasure to talk to you forever, man. I do hope we get to meet in person. Meanwhile, sad of the East Coast. And thank you for all your work doing. you're doing, Tony. These are the conversations that need to be more accessible, need to be out there. I think a lot of our doctor friends want to do this kind of work, just don't know how to talk about it, don't know how to, et cetera. So conversations like these and you putting them out there in the world make a big difference. And I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, BJ. If you like this podcast and you want to go ahead, please go ahead and hit subscribe or follow. If you need to get in touch with me, you can get in touch with me at theorsiniway.com. Thank you so much for being on and thanks for everybody for listening. Well, before we leave, I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. And I want to thank the Finley Project for being such an amazing organization. Please, everyone who's listening to this episode, go ahead, visit thefinleyproject.org, see the amazing things they're doing. I've seen this 
organization literally saved the lives of mothers who lost infants. So to find out more, go to thefindleyproject.org. Thank you, and I will see you again on Tuesday. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review. To contact Dr. Orsini and his team or to suggest guests for future podcasts, visit us at theorsiniway.com. The comments and opinions of the interviewer and guests on this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions and beliefs of their present and past employers or institutions.